I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. We've got the same dad. But we didn't meet until I was nearly 30. So this is the album where we make up for lost time. It's also the podcast where we make up for lost time. <laughs> Sorry, I did that on the very first one. <laughs> I'm Rob. <laughs> this is the worst one yet. What's going on? And I'm Dave. We've got the same dad. But we didn't meet until I was nearly 30. So this is the podcast where we share the music we missed out on. So we give each other an album that your brother sh- should. should. No! Oh! All right. In this case, uh, I'm the brother presenting Dave with Is This It by The Strokes. We always... Uh, seem to drop the cliche that said album doesn't need an introduction, but in this case, <laughs> it's completely uh, irre- irrelevant that I tell you anything about it you don't already know. Um, it's one of those rare cases of an album that lives up to its own hype. Uh, it's, of course, their, the Strokes' debut album. The band were, of course, formed in New York in the late 90s, met by a monumental hype after playing their first gigs in late 2000. Were touring the UK by January 2001, had a record deal with Rough Trade before, on the basis of a three-track EP before they'd really done anything of note. Uh, this album was kind of a classic before it happened. The crazy thing is, 22 years later, I'm convinced it stands up. Uh, it's just as potent, just as powerful, just as youthful, hooky, and such an ecstatic rock and roll piece of joy. It's kind of bewildering to me that my brother Dave probably just missed this this was a, I, i'm not entirely sure but this record came out in september 2001 depending on where you were living actually uh, it, it was it was held up a little bit by 9-11 and we'll come to some of that but it probably was being released and being talked about around the time we first sat down at a dinner table together dave so first of all i want to ask you dave uh what was your engagement with the Strokes back in 2001 did you did you heard of them were you were you aware of this monumental hype did you did you have any grasp of what was going on? Were you reading the enemy? Absolutely none at all. Yeah, no, and that's the problem. Um, you know, I I spent a lot of the nineties reading Q magazine, um, but I must have stopped around um, uh, the time of this album because my preconception knowledge, remarkable though it may sound, of the Strokes was pretty much zero. I'd heard last night, and therefore, as a result. I kind of had them in the camp of, you know, there was Britpop, fine, not really for me. And then it felt like to me five or 10 years later, clearly there was another kind of wave of kind of rock pop or pop rock bands that were, that were big, kind of the Kooks, the Kaiser Chiefs, the Killers. They all start with a K for some reason. Franz Ferdinand, Razor Light, these kind of, and I, and I had the strokes in that list. And with apologies to all the fans of those bands, for, for me, there were all this kind of homogenous lump of, it's not pure pop music, you know, it's not kind of, you know, Kylie Minogue kind of stuff, but it's not proper rock either. It's radio friendly, jingly guitar, very, very good for festivals. And, and I'm sure those bands have a much bigger backstory to them as the strokes clearly do, but that's where I'd lump them in. It, it just kind of, you know, jingly guitar pop. 
And honestly, as someone who lived through these heady, halcyon days that have been hallowed by the rock critics of time, I didn't actually feel the way, you know, I, I was very aware of this wave of exciting music. And right, likewise, I put the Strokes in that same camp too. I probably liked them a little bit more than some of those bands. I mm-hmm. liked some of those bands. I didn't like all those bands. But yeah, there was something wonderful going on in that era. And uh, I was, you know, in my mid-teens at that point, And it was a really, really fundamentally exciting time but when you're in your mid-teens you don't realize that it's exciting time you think this is what all music is like and as a result i don't think i valued the strokes as much as i have in subsequent years which we'll talk a little bit about that journey moving on but i can't wait just to ask you dave um i think about two weeks have passed since i sent you the task of listening to these 36 minutes of sublime music what did you make of it okay um i won't leave you hanging on I i need to discount the first two tracks and we'll get into why. You what? Yeah, first two tracks. Just after the first. You can't do this without a disclaimer. You have to. You always pick <laughs> a mix. Can you never just admit? It, it, there's, there's, there were very few perfect records ever made, and I'm not going to claim this is a perfect record, but it's about as close to as exists. In that every track is an undisputed banger. Okay, no, fair enough. I, I, you know, it is a per- okay. So it's a perfect record. Yes, it's brilliant. Yes, even the first two tracks. It's entirely sort of personal reasons with the with the second track, and I'll go on to the first track. It is, yeah, a brilliant album of of, of astounding proper rock music. It, it it wears its influence on its sleeves, but creates something new. So you listen to it, and and for me, summer was good. Track three. Barely legal track four. At that point, uh, my my uh, oh, this is just jangly pop guitar defenses started to fall. And as I was beaten around the head with this very this sound that, as I say, you can you can pick up bits of Stooges and Velvet Underground. Um, I even I even heard they won't like this, but sort of early U two in so in, in in some of it. Ooh. I know. Um, no, never mind them. I won't yeah, like that. They won't like that at all. But um. Barely legal someday alone together last night. By the time it got to hard, hard to explain, I was just like, you know, there's the, the chorus of hard to explain where they, where, um, he does, I miss the last pass, I take the next track. I was, just, that was it. I was ready to be, you know, take anything, anything that, uh, um, the strokes could, could hand at me there by that time, musically, emotionally, solely, because they create this kind of power and, and energy. And every song doesn't quite do what you think it's going to do. That was the thing for me. I, every song I was listening to thinking, yeah, I kind of got a grip of this. And almost it is every song. There's a, there's a verse, a chorus or a break or something that kind of r- raises the energy levels up to 11. And, and you go, well, I wasn't expecting that. And I'm really interested to hear what's going to come, come next. So by the time it got to, um, to hard to explain, I was like, yeah, I'm on, I'm, I'm on the roller coaster of, of, of the strokes I'm in now. And, and the rest of the album didn't disappoint either. Well, I'm really, really glad to hear that, to be honest, because, uh, I, yeah, I was worried you were going to pick it apart and say it was, you know, as you say, too close to its references, which I, which I understand. And I think what you've just said is very apt in that all these songs are very, very simple. And I've, you know, I've sat down and learned to play them and there's nothing on the face of it that's extremely complicated nor does the need to be but there is a very distinct sound and a sense of continuity that holds them all together and it's a really kind of singular vision to me i think it's got that plays that classic trick of making everything sound very throwaway very youthful very off the cuff 
very alive and it is very alive music and albert hammer jr the you know the, the, the better known guitarist has, has said that basically this this record was them recording their live set at the time and their live sets at that point are by all accounts blistering you know they were a real party band but i do think there's more more to it and that's why i say i, I i'm fairly certain i bought this album within a month if not a week of it coming out because the hype was monumental and sure i enjoyed it and i played it a lot but I also, as you said, heard all those subsequent bands, and I didn't really mark out how exceptional this record was until much later. It's, but it's the fact that I kept returning to this record in a way that I, you know, no one's playing Razorlight's first album anymore. You know, you know, <laughs> with, with with apologies to the, there will be some mad Razorlight fans going. Of course, I am. I still love it. But I, I agree with you. It's it sounds absolutely effortless, as good rock and roll should, right? No one should. It shouldn't sound like anybody's trying. And maybe they weren't, maybe they are just geniuses, but it bears repeated listening because there's just so many brilliant hooks and melodies. And I don't just mean the, mm. the, the vocals. I mean, there's little bass parts, the interplay between the two guitars. You can listen to this again and again and again, and something piques your interest again and again and again. So they, they must have put, they must have put a lot more thought into it. Um, well, either they are absolute born again geniuses or they put a whole lot more thought into it than this kind of throwaway vibe sound sounds like. No, I mean, I think by all accounts, they actually were meticulous. They spent a lot of time. They were rehearsing five, seven nights a week. I mean, this whole album and this whole experience. So the, the other thing that's interesting is that, yes, to me, living through those moments, I wasn't aware that this was kickstarting a new movement. As I said, I was on the tail sure. end of Britpop. You were hearing like late blur. You were hearing echoes of alternative music still coming through, maybe a bit of pavement, whatever was happening at that moment. Uh, but hindsight has really shown us this did kick off what became known as the garage rock revival. It really brought the guitar back. And I, I would actually argue this was kind of the, this was the last hurrah this is the last time i'd say that guitar music was truly relevant and it all did really kick off with visits here you know soon after you, it helped put it basically drew the spotlight to new york and it may not be a coincidence this was kind of a post 9 11 knee-jerk reaction as well but you know we soon saw like the the yeah for example achieve not quite uh, the same level of fame but same exposure obviously they're from detroit but the white stripes mm-hmm. you know were, were in the immediate slipstream uh, i think elephant and seven nation army were only two years away uh from this but they'd already put, were putting out some great records in advance uh of that and it was all kind of happening concurrently what it then led to of course was was yeah a wave of slightly less inspired and slightly more <laughs> cynical music and i'm talking <laughs> obviously about kings of leon and the killers uh-huh. and what have you yeah. And again, if you live through this era, you didn't really realize that you this really was the last dying gasp of guitar music being genuinely relevant and genuinely exciting, I think. And of course, there are exceptions to that rule. Of course, both old and new acts have made interesting guitar music in the intervening years, but there hasn't been this sense of it commanding the zeitgeist in quite the same way. And it really did kick off the air. I mean, a lot of the crap rap metal that was that was kind of happening then. I'm talking like Corn, Limp Bizkit. You know that that's what was was to a certain extent. I'm sorry, Green Day. That's <laughs> what was kind of happening in the late '90s. You know, and also I think in the UK we had this new acoustic movement with like Star Sailor and things like that, and oh, okay. which again wasn't bad, but it was a bit of a hinterland. There'd been a bit of a waiting game. Mm-hmm. We'd we, you know Oasis had we'd waited three years for Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, and it was shite. We waited three years for Radiohead's Kid A, which was wonderful, but we were all left scratching our heads and then when the strokes came out in 2001 with this it really did feel like a moment and and yeah I, I think it adds up to all being worth it um you were talking a little bit about the arrangements what is it that you find so exciting about them <laughs> um do you know what if i knew the answer to that 
I, I wouldn't be sitting here doing a podcast with you. I'd be playing Wembley. Why is it that this particular mix of Julian Casablanca's voice and lyrics, the two guitars doing their interplay thing, which is constantly interesting, and as you say, none of it's complicated. I think even I could play a mm. lot of this album, and that's a that's a big even. Um, oh, I think you could play it all. <laughs> um, the bass is is actually wonderful because it's sometimes really yeah. st- straight ahead and then sometimes th- he'll just go off and do a little a little kind of run or something that's really interesting but he really mostly drives it straight ahead mm. and and similarly with the drums there's some it's it's almost um charlie watts i suppose is the obvious you know it, it drives but with these wonderful little little kind of flicks and fills as well that, that goes on why does that combination of stuff make you want to go back and as i say it really does sound a lot like early mm-hmm. you know the velvet underground you, you can you can see that okay uh, and and yet it it isn't just that and it certainly sounds like something new and different and not just a tribute band to the extent that I've only I've I've concentrated just on this album but I'm I'm really really interested and want to I can't wait after this podcast to to now listen to the rest of their work and and it's a band I want to well, get, want to get into that in that way I mean prepare to be disappointed but only to a certain extent <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so t- I, I say this as, as, a, as a genuine as a genuine believer no I, I mean I think the rest of their work has a lot to it which we'll get to but mm-hmm. uh, I want to take issue with the Velvets comparison because I think the two things that come up most are yeah the Velvet Underground and television and well I think the television comparison makes more sense because it's a band again defined by these really two strong jagged clean but edgy guitar parts mm-hmm. the Velvets to me I, I totally see it in the vocals and it is you know, for everything that Julian Casablanca has said about not being especially influenced by Lou Reed, when he was asked for his dream collaboration, that was mm. the one he 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 answered with, which I thought was quite telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, vocally, sure, he's got that street smart swagger, and definitely the production on this album, which was quite deliberate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they got quite a lot of uh, resistance from the record company. I mean, for the record, I think let's talk a little bit about the music. I think the reason it sounds so immediate and so catchy is because the bulk of it was recorded live in the studio, but this wasn't banged out in a day. They had at least six weeks it was over two months I think April and May 2001 that they were they were recording they liked to bottle first takes but they clearly spent a lot of time in the studio so I presume by first takes they meant the first take that day and they were rehearsing five to seven nights a week up until that point to the point where they even rehearsed they went to the rehearsal room on September 11th during wow. the middle of the tragedy because because wow. they were that the, their early days are, are kind of retold by themselves and their peers in uh, Lizzie Goldman's great oral history of the era Meet Me in the Bathroom which okay. is named after a nodwink stroke song off the subsequent album but by all accounts they actually liked each other which is a bit sad what's happening today but they were a gang they hung out all the time they wore those clothes every day they yeah they 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 drank and they smoked and they played rock and roll and they believed it and they were you know as excited as everybody else when their music was being well received because you've got to also remember that i think the oldest members julian and probably albert were 22 at this point wow our youngest would have been 1920 wow they were that young when they're making this music. And that really comes across when you see interviews of that in, in, in those days. They really are just like snotty kids that just don't believe how lucky they've got. But also, you know, also starting to buy into a little bit of the, of the hype. Yeah. And so it's got this immediacy because they rehearsed these songs really, really, really hard mm. and made these arrangements really, really tight. And that's why I kind of like the way they abruptly end and you hear the drumsticks thrown down and, because I don't think any of it's contrived at all. I think this was all very deliberate. And the part to bring back to the underground, yes, that lo-fi thing was very much a choice. Mm. They spent, a, you know, they, they they chose. In fact, interestingly, they they were first teamed up with Gil Norton, who produced Doolittle, who we spoke about ah, a few weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, but that didn't work out. 
so they end up going with a different producer and going for this more DIY aesthetic, which is what they wanted. I, I wonder if part if because they they or perhaps Julian himself always knew that his vocals weren't the strongest, and by singing them through a guitar amp and giving them this muffle, uh, it would help. But yeah, so the production, I buy it. It's very, very, you know, Sister Ray era Velvets, right? Sure. I get it. I sure. hear that. Yeah. But I think the meticulous arrangements, the Velvets were always kind of loose and jammy. And Lou Reed wasn't doing so much on guitar, really. It wasn't these, I think because there's two distinct guitarists and lead singer, to me, this is far more like television, but actually it's not really like, I, I don't think that the Velvets ever did music this precise, this well orchestrated and this together. Perhaps now is the time to introduce my problem with track two, uh, The Modern Age, which is the most, you know, Lou, but, but I say this advisedly, Lou Reed and Velvet Underground, because of course in Lou, Lou Reed's yep. solo work, he was a lot more meticulous. Um, you know, <laughs> albums like, well. Ber- albums like Berlin are very, very well. Yeah. Okay. Um, Albums like Berlin, uh, New York were actually really, really, really thought through and the arrangements very, very tightly considered. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. But okay, that's that that that's fine for me. New York's New York's are two guitars, bass, drums, jamming jamming on a few chords, from what I recall. Yeah, Berlin, sure, with the strings I, and everything, but that's a different kind of preciseness. We're talking about a very tight band with very ornate arrangements where again it's that whole thing we've talked about where the parts are very simple but they all interlock in a way that's kind of sounds familiar yet completely original at the same time all i can tell you is that i start this on having never heard of it the first track is this it yeah it's it's an absolutely great track and and as i was listening to it i was like okay if the rest of this album is brilliant this is a really really good opening track if this is as good as it gets then it's an all right opening track. You know, it's a very, yeah. very introductory piece of music and that's great. It's almost like yeah. a, a, it's like an overture to the rest of the album and that's, and that's brilliant. The modern age comes on. Now I am a very, 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 very big Lou Reed and Velvet Underground uh, fan. You know, I, I will still chiefly listen to Lou Reed's, um, collaboration with Metallica, Lulu. You know, I, that, that, that's, that's how deep I'll go. I, it still saddens me massively that he's, that he's passed away and isn't creating any new music because I liked his, I liked everything. I liked everything from the early all the way through to, uh, ecstasy and the, little machine music. And well, you know, and that, that you know, that's just a that's just an aside. But but, but did, did, did do you like it? I, it's it's just a thing, you know. And it's a shame. It's the thing that everyone throws at you with Louis because there's so much richness uh, aside from that. That's just something he did because he was pissed off with the record company and he then dressed it up as an artistic statement. But it's not it's not representative of his of his work. So I am really sad that Louis is not around today, still creating music. So I've you know I've heard track one is this it fine. Modern age comes on. And you're right, maybe, I mean, it's got tinges of um, waiting for the man, uh, you know, uh, 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 musically. Yeah. Uh, but, but It's definitely the most velvet moment. Yeah, and yeah. It's also, interestingly, the first and the title track of their WEP. Okay. So I do think there's a reason they got this Velvet Underground comparison. Sure. Not only were they from New York, but they, they released this free track EP, which was basically the modern age and last night and barely legal, I think. Okay. Uh, but earlier recordings of them, and I think they were slightly more, they were rearranged later, but, but that was from the off. And actually, uh, famously, NME, when they toured the UK in January, they got off the plane in January 2001, just on the back of this. They recorded a demo, Rough Trade released it in the UK. They arrived, were touring the UK instantly, and this track was on the cover mount of an NME issue. So it's the first thing anyone heard was the modern age. And I do think in many ways, it's the most reductive moment on the record. But, when he sings in the sunshine having fun, I mean, it, it, it just grabs you. I mean, it's a bit of a, a truck 
pummeling sound. It, 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 this has got the least going on musically, perhaps, but it's just it, it, and it just keeps droning those two chords. But by the end of it, you're you're on that trip with them, and when, when the chorus kicks in, you know it's. I, it's 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 a fine song. Don't get me wrong, and this is a very personal thing for me because for me, the, I, and and there is something about whether you know, if you're going to put it on the first track of an EP or second track of your album, it does feel like they're setting out their stool as a kind of high. We're a Lou Reed Velvet Underground tribute band. That's that's where I was thinking halfway mm. through this this song because it's you know it's not just a little bit like Lou Reed the vocal style. You know the the bit where he does the go 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 the stutter. You know, I mean, Lou Reed spends most of Coney Island Baby doing the album doing doing that. You know, kicks if anybody's. Lurie fan, they'll know what I mean. That's a little, you know, if it, it, it's the equivalent of if you're doing an Elvis impersonation, you go, uh huh, you know, it's that. It's 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 that much to me a, 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 a Lou Reed pastiche and impersonation. So that's why I really struggle. Even now, though I love the album, uh, I, I'm fast forwarding over track two because I think it's great. But, okay. but but I can't listen to it. It's a bit like, um, and this is a real domestic analogy. Uh, we had a cat until Christmas, a cat, a black cat called Merlin, and it died, and we're all terribly sad about it. And we're we're wondering whether to get a new cat or not. And we probably will get a new cat in the household for my kids. Um, but we. Won't won't be getting a black cat called Merlin because that would just be a little bit too sad, right? And listening to this is just—it's just—it's just like, no, I want Lurie to be alive, and I don't want you to be copying him. And I think, I think the other thing is okay because then I went on to Summer, which you start to go, well, this is different, and I'm getting something, and then barely legal. I think I WhatsApped you in the week, didn't I, and said. That's a fucking awesome tune, you know. That barely legal for, monster you for said. me was the point where I went. Oh, it started to go. Oh my goodness! I don't know how they're doing it, but this is something new and different. And they don't need to mm. do. They don't need to do any copying of Lou Reed Velvet Underground. You know, they're they're, they're better than that. Um, so, and mm. I and I just can't get over that with with the modern age. And that's my thing. I and not anybody else's. But that's where I'm at with it. You, you are right. I mean, if they had been the Kooks, they would have put someday second. You know, that, yeah. that's the yeah, that's the pop hook, and that actually that is to be honest, I never made never noticed this until you pointed out, well until you pointed this out about as is this it mm. the Kooks first album, which I have a lot of time for. I think the Kooks are one of the I, I joke about the K bands. In fact, uh, you know, there the, was this wave because you could also put Kasabian in there mm-hmm. in that list along with Killers and Kings of Leon. Um, I think the Kooks are for me probably the the most enduring of the lot, but again, it very much rests on a sublime debut album sure i don't know if you're familiar with it but it starts with a solo acoustic song where it's very different like to everything else on the record yeah. and then it jumps into a uh, pop banger called it jumps into um she it goes in her own way does it not that's what i'm thinking of is it which no i think that's fourth oh oh then it'll be um it'll be the other one <laughs> exactly it's see i like that album i've actually it's the only kooks album i've got to be honest see the world oh no as you can naive no, oh no, that's no, not even on that no, one. No, that's later. I'll just say it's really interesting you pointed that out, Dave, and I hadn't thought of it until this moment, but it actually mm. reminds me, and maybe it's a bit of a homage. It's the Kooks debut album, the one very enduring statement they made, Inside In, Inside Out. Uh, it mm. starts with that very short acoustic ditty called Seaside, which you kind of feel is, you know, acts as an overture, uh, mm-hmm. acts as a moment to like take stock before before the barrage of you know jangly guitar pop kicks in. Um, and a bit like is this it? I always assumed, I always took it as yeah, as a throwaway beginner. Mm-hmm. In both cases, the bands they're clearly so beloved. The bands still play them, and I find it strange having seen both bands when they play is this it? And actually, as you mentioned, I saw the Strokes live a couple of nights ago, and I will probably talk about that a bit more in a moment, but. 
for me, the lowest point of the, of the gig was when they played Is This It because it just doesn't really work and also uh, Julian can't really can't really sing it anymore. Okay. I would just assume they open every gig with it just as a kind of, you know, they opened the first album with no, it. No, guess, 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 guess what they opened in Hong Kong on uh, July 16th with, Dave? No idea. Barely legal, I would hope. Or was it, or did they just do, did they just do last night to get out of the way? The modern age. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> hopefully I, so, would, I would have still been at the bar if I'd been there and not quite got to the gig yet. So I could come in and enjoy the rest of it. On that note, yeah. what is it that you don't like about the first song? Because I think it's quite special. Uh, again, it's, it's, when I heard this album 22 years ago, mm. I, yeah, I, I felt it was a cute little open. I felt it was silly and inconsequential. And I've now sat down and listened to it more and realized just how simple it is. It really is. It literally is a definition of a two chord song. Sure. Now, there's something about the way when, when the, when the bass comes in in that second verse, when the, we all disagree, I think we should disagree. Like there's something about it that I, I think it's a great song. No, don't get, I agree. I, I picked out that, that bit where it starts to repeat itself again, but it doesn't do the whole thing again. And, and, and the bass just does something a lot more widdly. That, that, just yeah that that's that's really interesting but um no i think it's a great song all i'm saying is it is a great you know it's not like a full on big song is it it's a kind of interesting mm. starter to something and so as i as i was yeah. getting into this album it was like well look if that leads to something great that's a brilliant starter to something but if the rest of the album isn't any good then it's like well i've been led up the garden path to a sneeze but the sneeze haven't happened you know it, so it's it's a perfect great song for the album i love it but it does depend on the rest of the album being brilliant which fortunately it is yeah. So that so that's fine. So is there anything else you didn't like about it? So the, you mentioned Julian's vocal sound, and I think that is something I've been pondering because it's now hard to hear the songs without that. Presumably he's singing through an, a sort of overdrive pedal or something because it just distorts. As I understand it, distorts it he's a higher singing, volume. So so yeah, go on. As I understand it, he's literally plugged a mic into a guitar amp, right? And mic the amp. Okay, and I, I, you said it was to mask some vocal deficiencies. I, I, I would, I, I, or, or was it? I don't know. Gone. I, I don't know that. I'm... I, okay, no, I, I, I would imagine not. I don't because I, I suppose I found myself. You know, the obvious question is, what does it sound like when you're not doing that? And would it work? And would it have quite the same? What's the right word? Visceral feel to it, mm. or, or gritty? Gris, would it have quite the same visceral or gritty feel to it without it? But I did find myself thinking, there's some of these songs I'd like to hear it without that. I don't know if on later albums that carries on i don't know how he does it live i have to say while we're on his vocals i think they're incredible you know and i think i can say this as someone that's sung in quite a few pub rock bands now uh you know just as you can talk with some authority about guitaring some of the stuff he does is quite remarkable specifically right at the end take it or leave it the chorus of take it or leave it it makes my throat hurt every time i hear it to kind of i'm always quite often mentally thinking oh how would it be to sing this and that kind of almost shouting almost singing chorus uh, I think is an absolute phenomenal piece of vocal work and I can listen to it for forever and ever because it's so, I tell you what it is, it's like if, you, if, if as I'm listening to it and I think, oh, maybe someday and last night they are a bit too jangly pop for me, but I think the way they've spaced them out. Really? Yeah, well, and I, A, I don't think they are and B, the way they've spaced them out with Barely Legal Alone Together and Hard to Explain around them, it kind of gives you a good mm. contrast. But if you ever, I actually thought the album was going to stop with Trying Your Luck because that's a kind of slightly more settled, calmer, almost lyrically seen seems to sum things up a little bit you know i've lost my page again i know this is real but i'll try my luck with you and life is on my side um this is a chance it just feels like a sort of almost hopeful kind of way to end an album i thought it was going to finish then and then take it or leave it came on and i was like wow i mean that's a 
That's a hell of an album closer. Um, yeah. One of my two favourite songs on the album. And if you ever thought they were, you know, which I didn't, but uh, once I'd heard them, if you ever thought they were, you know, just a little jangly pop band, well, take it or leave it, it's going to gonna slap you around the face and disavow you of that thought pretty damn quickly because it's got such a, a thrill and a grit to it. Primarily, yeah. because, I think, because of Julian's vocals on it. That's really good to hear because uh, as someone who's a weak vocalist themselves, I, I sometimes hear his voices and they, they do sound quite strained and quite, you can hear him dancing between notes and not always hitting them and so it's reassuring that you yeah. you know I, but there is a power to it there's a real power to what he does yeah. um yeah i think it's also just the delivery i mean again we, we've discussed this and it's it's interesting that this record is nothing like the pixies but i think for me it may be another victim of overexposure but i think it's there are lyrics here that i find just really really memorable okay and that is yeah i, I think he's got a turn of phrase that's very kind of conversational but very I think one of my favorite lines is, well, I am too young and they are too old. I mean, <laughs> only a 22-year-old can sing that. But, it, you know, listening to this album makes me... <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel younger in a good way. I mean, it, to be know, fair, it, it, a fifty-year-old can sing those in a in a, in a covers band. I mean, I, it wasn't that long ago, uh, to my shame, that uh, we were still knocking out teenage kicks, and there is a slight, there's a, there's a slight embarrassment. Yeah. <laughs> well, as 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 a thousands of others, but no, to so take yeah. it or leave it. Um, yeah. I think it's a really great closing statement. Interestingly, it kind of feels like a bookend. Like, is this yeah. it? Take it or leave it. And yeah. apparently take it or leave it was was considered as a title, which I think when you consider the monumental hype that had met them, where they'd kind of become, you know, they were, they, there was this huge buzz around them mm-hmm. six, nine months before they'd put more than three songs out. So I think they were quite self-aware. And again, by their own account, they were kind of thinking this was the beginning of something and they were going to go on to make lots yeah. more better records, which debatably they kind of achieved you know mm-hmm. they definitely achieve more complexity sure but yeah so for me it's it's not an album where i can talk about my favorite songs because mm. whilst whilst of course it's not a perfect record it, every track has such a strong hook such great arrangements such a powerful vocal delivery so there's, there's something in everything that I, that I adore but forcing myself to make some some harsh decisions you know I, I can't say that every song is a is a five-star song so i would kind of argue there's nine five-star songs and if I was to choose my weaker moments, which is difficult, I yeah, I I find Trying Your Luck just not a bad song. And I, I think the chorus is very powerful, but I think it just takes it down just a peg uh, in terms of the quality of the rest of the material. As we discuss, is this it? I mean, it, it in many ways, it's a two-star song, but in the context of the record, I think it holds up as a five. Mm-hmm. The other time, I think it kind of, for me... I'm going to say it's a four and a half star song. Alone together, I think with the drum machine and the riff, I find that a little bit dull and generic and the chorus of... Mm-hmm. It sounds a bit tired and a bit... It's a lazy pentatonic thing going on there. Not that any of the riffs are complicated, but you can hear that... It feels... But then when you know the chorus kicks in, it becomes this wonderful song again. So I'm calling sure. that a 4.5 song. Okay. But other, otherwise, I'm pretty much, if any of the other songs came on and I was in a place where it was socially acceptable or only <laughs> ju- not quite socially acceptable to, to jump up and sing and or dance, I would. Okay. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, well, I... 
I really like Alone Together. O- oddly, the one that has had to grow on me more, because Trying Your Luck, as, as I say, I just thought, oh, that's a great album closer. It's winding things down a bit. It is, it is a bit more, it goes at a less tempo. It, yeah, it just feels like it's winding, winding down the album. Um, the one that's had to grow on me, oddly, is New York City Cops. Oh, okay. Which I can see that. I didn't find all of the other bits of magic in in the songs, I found quite unique and, and special. And I was like, I honestly, I can't imagine where you've plucked that out and put that in that song and it sounds brilliant. New York City Cops sounded a little bit like The Strokes by Numbers, which is not a bad thing. And and obviously it also slightly sticks out in the album as the, um, or there is a personal story in it as well, as a, as a kind of more political out there statement. The rest of the album is very, very, you know, 19 to 20 year old lyrics. Great. But talking about relationships and your place in the world and, and, and how you fit in or don't, you know, it's quite insular, the, lyric, the lyrics. New York City's Cops is in all the looks outside, you know, and there's the obvious dynamic that you know they pulled it from the from the US release because of because of nine eleven. So it sticks out a little bit, sort of conceptually, and I didn't quite. But it's I have to say uh, it's grown on me now, and I, I, I it was just originally originally I was like I'm not quite so sure that's as strong hook wise. No, I completely agree, and I think in many cases it is quote unquote basic strokes, uh, mm. the riff at least. I mean, it really is. It's a riff you can play without looking at your hands. You know, it's it. I think it's the one. You, <laughs> you, you might you be able to rob for this. I, the it's very I play any riff without a, looking a, at my hands. A, 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 G, G, E, G, E. It's always a punk song. I'd still be looking at my hands with my with, with my tongue between my teeth, trying to trying to get that out. But anyway, sorry, go on. My point was you probably wouldn't need a tab. You wouldn't need a tab to work it out, though. No, I don't think. That's true. So, yeah, I, I found that. And I feel like this is a song that I've had a complicated relationship with mm. in that you kind of love it hate it for that brain dead punk feel Mm. but i think the verse while not super developed it's basically a descending chord progression but the you know that's kind of kooky and cool and then the chorus is just really 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 powerful and yeah i mean everyone wants to get on board of a song that is you know anti the establishment um Mm -hmm. i think everyone knows the story here but just to kind of lay it out so because of the hype this release was coming out in different territories at different times right yeah and uh, in the dying days of vinyl, it came out in the States on vinyl on September 11th itself. Wow. Which is why the States version always, vinyl version had that. Um, and I think it was meant to come out on CD two weeks later, but I think it probably took about six weeks by the time that they, you know, yeah. took this song off, put another one on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I c- of course they had to make that decision. I can see why. Sure. Um, I've always been very, very glad that it was on my version. I've also been very, very glad that my copy that I bought in the local indie record store had the, you know, the bum and the whiff of pubic hair, very visible, unlike the strange <laughs> nuclear co- combustor or whatever is on the target friendly walmart cover that the u.s got um <laughs> you, but no um you, you need to explain that one more go on uh you're not familiar with it you, I, I am but well, I'm not everybody might not be and you, yeah go on well so there's the sexy cover mm-hmm. and then there's the weird sci-fi cover mm. uh and yeah it's supposedly the u.s big stores would not allow the sexy cover but sure. we still got it in the uk and i think we still got it in most other territories sure and it's now the spotify one interesting um just this morning i played the track that did go on instead in america when it started so that's the only other stroke song I've, I've i've heard uh and and it's it's definitely a slightly lower key sort of fits with trying your luck wind down song but it's pretty good and and you wonder it's certainly strong enough to, to you, you wonder why they just didn't stick them both on to start with because they they certainly had the vinyl space it's only 38 minutes anyway isn't it 36 minutes so um, 36 and a half yeah. yeah yeah but there you go they they they, they didn't they, they obviously wanted to make it short and punchy 
So, Dave, yes. uh, this is the part of the show where I, I ask you where the best place to listen to this album would be. Um, the best place to listen to this album. God. Uh, 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 uh. So, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, for my, okay. Why does this album remind you of New York? Or, or make you think of New York? There's a, there's a question. Is it just his accent, the delivery? It doesn't, unlikely read, really, it doesn't talk about other than New York City cops. It doesn't have any imagery of New York in it. Um, but what I'd love to do is, uh, is have this on the headphones while jogging around Central Park. That would be, that would be my ideal. That's a great answer. It's far too clean living, though. To me, this album yeah, definitely right. speaks, speaks okay. of hedonism and youthful behaviour. Uh, and- uh, jogging around Central Park with a hangover and a, and a fag on, even though I don't smoke. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Because, yeah, I mean, we've talked about music being a constant companion, and, mm. and I guess as much as any album, this has formed a soundtrack mm. to my life. So, I, I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I would have bought it within within weeks, if not days, of it being released. Mm. And I was very aware of it, and I enjoyed it, and I'm pretty sure everyone in my friend group would have bought it. And we all enjoyed it, but we were also at the same time getting into the history of rock and roll. We were, you know, we were, mm. we were buying all the records by the Velvet Underground and the Stones and sure. Bob Dylan and, and, and the Kinks and whoever else. Uh, and I thought it was a great record, but I didn't think it was especially great in comparison with all the other great music I was discovering. But it kind of just, just stuck around my whole life. So... When I went to university, I'd say actually more than that album, but the follow-up, Room on Fire, but to say since this were were the soundtrack to many a, a roomy house, uh, a uni house party. Mm. I mean, I, I think this and the Libertines and a bit later, Kings of Leon and the, and Im- the imitators of this music sure. were kind of always on. Uh, and and again, a bit like we discussed with uh, Debaser by the Pixies, and I won't say this about every album I pick, I promise, <laughs> there's probably two songs. Uh, last night was, you know, a guaranteed floor filler at yeah. every indie disco party. But it always felt like this music I was sharing. It felt like a music of my generation, sure. Uh, but it didn't really feel that personal to me. When I really think I felt the strokes were the band for me was when I belatedly picked up their third album, First Impressions of Earth, right. which is a far deeper, darker, more personal work, which I might recommend you check out, okay. uh, which, which deals head on with fame and claustrophobia and alcohol abuse and a lot of the things that, that Jim was going through. Uh, and it made the band seem that much more fully rounded. Uh, and since then, I, I saw the band in 2015 at a festival in the US and I saw them a couple of days ago here in Hong Kong. And, and every time I've gone back to their music, I feel like this first album is stronger than I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Two two things there. One is I, I think it's left me wanting to hear you know more Strokes albums, um, but from what everyone's saying is they hit the home run on the first album and it's been a slightly downhill trajectory. I wouldn't completely agree with that. Okay. So if you'd like to hear more Strokes, mm-hmm. yeah, the follow up Room on Fire, where the the kind of basic match report everyone will give you is that it's the same thing but not as good. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't actually agree with that at all. The production is definitely a lot cleaner. Why it's the same kind of does sound very live, very lively, very two guitars in a room still. Mm. It, it's it's a bit cleaner. There's there's more variety in tempo, a bit more singer-songwriter, but it's still got some bangers on there. I think Reptilia is, you know, a pop song as good and and, and probably as well-known, if not better known, than any of the songs on this album. It may be actually their, their biggest hit quote-unquote um and and there's many many other great songs on that album i I used to i used to say that it's like a a third great a third okay and a third not so good but Mm -hmm. having revisited it a lot in the in the recent weeks i think it really does hold up and interestingly again when julian was asked recently 
journalist was trying to get a rise out of him would you rather listen to you know is this it or your most recent <laughs> album uh, <laughs> the new abnormal no i think at that point it was come down machine and he was like i'd, I'd put on room, room on fire <laughs> but yeah then so that came out in 2003 then i think it was three years later in 2006 the first impression of earth dropped and i feel like that is musically lyrically every sense of the production it's a lot more going on there's some heavier songs or some weirder songs it's about 55 minutes long um it's a far more interesting piece of work than either the two presiding ones. It won't give you the same shot of sheer, unadulterated, youthful abandon, but it might take you places on a dark night of the soul that this won't. Uh, and definitely musically, it will engage you more. There's a lot of clever riffs, a lot of clever interplay, and a lot more going on. But I think that's interesting, isn't it? How, how you know, they're clearly, you know, young, rough around the edges, and, you know, at the age of whatever they are, 2022, presumably they're going to become better musicians, quote unquote, as they get older. And there's that wonderful question about, well, what does that do to your music? <laughs> does, it, yeah. does it does it take away your well, it energy? Well, it maybe makes it less fun. Yeah. And it definitely uses some of that, that sparkle. But I don't sure. think it got immediately worse, if that's what you're hearing. Okay. I think the problem is that they stopped talking to each other. So all of those okay. three albums are basically credited to Casablancas, which I find remarkable. And I wonder when it comes to the arrangements, I'm kind of imagining he's sitting there writing out every guitar part, but I don't know how much of it was, you know, the band concocting these arrangements around. Because really, there's only two or three or four chords going on a lot of it. Sure. So the so sorry, just so I've understood. So the first three albums, it says it's just Julian that wrote them. Yeah, there's, there's I think each member gets one co-write here or there, uh, but okay. pretty much, right. like probably for a riff or whatever but more yeah. or less he wrote everything but you see that's because the songs are great but and the lyrics are great, great but they're the, not the, singer songwriters but they're not singer and this it's the it's the sound of the band that's important um i can't mm. imagine he i mean like the the one thing i haven't little thing i've I mentioned is the um the guitar solo in last night just makes me smile every time because it's so it reminds mm. me a bit of um you know the guitar solo in um Fight for your right to party, the Beastie Boys. It's mm. it's kind of well, it's better than that. It's, but, it's better, yeah. no, but it's sort of almost willfully terrible, um, but knowingly willfully. Oh, it's- no, but I, but it's it's great, but it's not technically brilliant. It's just a bit of a throwaway. Um, sounds quite jarring, but awesome at the same time, and quite and quite simple. It, it has that kind of vibe to it. I can't, I can't imagine. I love it, but I can't imagine Julian. I don't yeah. even know. Does he play lead guitar? You know, he doesn't. He just probably knocks his out on acoustic, and the band take them and make them sound brilliant. So that seems a bit harsh on the rest of the band to me. I'm not sure because the arrangements are so much a part of the song. I like mm. to think that he was demoing these all on four track or something first. But yeah, perhaps I'm giving him uh, too much credit. But yeah, interestingly, like yeah, I, 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 we haven't spoken about the solos. I think they're all kind of wonderful because. They all kind of sound tossed off, but also completely prepared. You know, yeah. they're played the same every time. Yeah. And they're kind of basic, but also very memorable. Interestingly, Last Night, I think, is the only one that, as far as I'm aware, that Albert plays, who's ah. basically the more of the rhythm player. Yeah, but yeah, also yeah, yeah. kind of Julian, Julian's foil. He's the he's the one he's definitely still talking to, let's right. put it that way. Right. So, uh, interestingly, seeing them in Hong Kong just now, mm. Albert got about four or five shout-outs on stage, including he still gets a big, like, Take it away, Mr. Albert Hammond Jr. Before the solo for last night. Like, they know it's a shitty solo, but they're right. giving this deliberate lead up. Yeah. Whereas the other guy, Nick Valenci, just does all the solos to no fanfare. <laughs> Interestingly, <laughs> I, you know, I heard from sources connected with the band mm-hmm. that they were staying in multiple hotels, not even two, but a few hotels wow. in the same neighborhood, so- which goes to such show how, how little they're communicating. But the drummer, 
went for a stage dive and gave out some drumsticks and got you know mm-hmm. got a, some fist pumps with Julian. And uh, at the end of the evening, when it was time for the final song, mm-hmm. uh, which was Reptilia, uh, the mic was handed to the bassist Nikolai. Mm-hmm. So the only person not to get any mention was was the other guitarist Nick Valenci, which I am. Um, Read what you will between it, but clearly uh, Julian and Albert are still brothers from another, and uh, not everybody else is is in the good books. And, and how long has that been going on for? So their last album, their last well, new album was when? Twenty twenty. I don't know. Let's bring this up to speed. So mm. so yeah. So those three albums came out within five years together, and then there was a very big hiatus. Julian's first solo album came out in two thousand nine. But then they kind of fell back together in 2011 and put out Angles, which was the first time the rest of the band got credits. It was also the first time there's backing vocals. There's also synths used for the first time. Didn't get great reviews. Don't hate it. Never put in enough time to love it. Okay. But then very shortly after, two years later, they fired out another one, Come Down Machine, which was again more of a bit more back to basics, a bit more guitar. I enjoyed that one more, mm-hmm. but uh, it's kind of been hinted in, around in interviews that these were kind of contractual obligations. I think at this point they had to, they were probably signed for a five album deal. Right. So after five years of not making any work, they kind of spat out a couple very quickly and then went their own separate ways again. They've all got different things going on. I think Hammond Jr. is on his, just put out his fourth solo album this year, but Casablanca's went off and formed The Voids, who have dropped two albums in 2014 and 2018. Right. And they're way weirder, which is what has started to make me question quite how much he's involved in the guitar arrangements on, and the stroke stuff. Right. Um, but despite all that, they did all co- they did come back together in 2020 for what now feels like the new album, but I realise it's three years old already, mm-hmm. uh, which which was kind of prophetically titled The New Abnormal. <laughs> I don't know if COVID had happened at that point when it was named. And it was produced by, you know, the great old sage, but like figure of our time, Rick Rubin. He managed to get them in the same room together to, oh, okay. to do something. And I think it's a really strong record. It's nothing like their first three, but it's a decent record. It's spread out writing credits. It's got slower songs. It's got poppy songs. It's an enjoyable listen. So in terms of your further listening, I would just go away and do 236 first in that order. 236. Okay. Yep. That's fine. I'll do that. So, of New Weekly Tradition, I think it's quite apparent that some tracks of this are going to find their way onto your hipster aging dad barbecue playlist. In fact, as I discussed earlier, I feel like seven to eight songs on this record would be guaranteed barbecue bangers. So, it's not really a question of will it, it's a question of which. This whole album is, of course, on the barbecue banger playlist. Uh, other than the obvious, like, is this it too slow? Uh, modern age because I'm still mourning Lou Reed and probably well and then the sweary ones because there's kids around as well and so we probably couldn't do New York City cops either because that was just uh, too many questions but but anyway apart from the really sweary ones <laughs> and the slow ones it's all going on um, any 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 two or three of the of the six or seven that leaves the other fun fact thing about the gig is that they literally played seven songs of this album including the first five. Right. And obviously last night and hard to explain, which was quite wonderful. But when in a 73 minute set, it doesn't leave you a lot of time for to rest your voice. So yeah, how is his, how are his pipes? Are they pretty shot? I think it held up pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Um, rattle through them. There's still very much an indie experience. There's no fanfare. There's no audio visual. There's no like coordinated intros or beginnings. Uh-huh. They just kind of rattle through the songs. They play everything you want to hear. So yeah, seven tracks off this. Mm-hmm. I think four off Room on Fire three off Impressions of Earth, and then just two off the new one, which means technically there's only two songs that are more than 17 years old, right. which is a bit sad. Uh, but as I said, I'm not convinced they're talking at all. It's a bit of a, a sorry end to mm. uh, a band that gives me a great deal of joy for their yeah their gang-like, tear-away vibes. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Thankfully, the music stands up. Yeah. So 
I'm, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed this one, Dave. Uh, you're clearly glad you knew it. So what what am I going to be listening to next? How can you top that? Uh, well, I'm going to attempt to top that with uh, we're going to go back in time uh, with the Stranglers' first album, Ratus Norvegus, oh. or Four, as it was also known. Yeah, I thought I'd go right back to some proper grur music. Uh, and see what you make of it from 1979. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon. <laughs>